Ryan, man. Welcome back to the show. It's our third time together. Appreciate you coming on and giving us some of your time. Yeah, it seems you're honoring that request that someone made to have me on monthly. We're almost there. Oh, I know. That's been good. It's, I, I'll like, uh, it's funny, man. I don't know how you and Aaron do it in terms of like scheduling either like topics or people that you want on the podcast, but invariably, like when I'm thinking about, I'll do like a month out calendar and I'm just thinking about, okay, every other week I want to have somebody on every other week. I want to do a podcast myself. And I'm just like the list of like people that I want to have on is not shrinking so much that like from a pretentious standpoint, but there are people that are just like, I'm interested to discuss and I feel like I have novel ideas. And so that our chats are always those things, I think. I appreciate that. Thanks, man. I'm always uh, glad to be here and converse with you. Nice. So give us a quick update, what you're up to, what you, what you've been doing for people who don't, you know, who didn't listen to our first couple of podcasts together, do a quick background intro and uh, I'll link both of those <laughs> podcasts below. So you don't need to go too in depth. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, yeah, I've been training almost 25 years, uh, started at 15. I'll be 40 next month. Uh, started out with uh, like three times a week, full body. It was a great approach to begin with. Ended up falling into CrossFit for almost a decade after college, eh, eight years. And then when I came out of CrossFit, I fell into what is now like this evidence-based fitness space. And uh, that was like maybe 2017. I started my own company in 2017, Evolved Training Systems, and then partnered with Lori, started Paragon Training Methods in 2018, and um, been kind of figuring out my own, my own twist on things, I guess. Like uh, you and I both, you know, have been influenced by the work of N1 and stuff, but like, like we've talked about, we both like to create our own kind of version of, of this. And we're not dogmatically attached to, to that philosophy. So I really appreciate that about, you know, both of the way we pursue things. And so the last few years I've kind of been figuring out my own approach and uh, something that, that works for me um, and also works for, for the people that I coach. And um, that's kind of the, the big picture. Uh, more recently, I finished cutting uh, at a low of 183, had a photo shoot on the day of the photo shoot. The photographer had the genius idea to do a running shot. And on the second set of runs, I popped my plantar fascia in two places, felt it in my heel, immediately thought it was my Achilles, reached for my Achilles, realized it wasn't. And that was a relief, but um, we're now three weeks post photo shoot, which means post rupture. And, uh, I'm still quite limited. I, I can't really walk. Um, I've taken up biking as a way to stay active and I've actually enjoyed it. So I, this is one thing that's changed for me a lot is I've always kind of been an anti-cardio guy, at least since coming out of CrossFit. And, uh, I just was like steps, steps are the way to go type thing. And since I've just these last three weeks really taken up biking, I have this, this love of trying to beat my time on courses and they're not like super short. I do a mix of short and long. Like I have a one minute course and I have like a 10 mile course and a five mile course and a two mile course, whatever. But like, um, I really enjoy kind of this other alternative route of, uh, of exerting myself and it's been kind of cool to get out of breath. So at least for the moment, I'm going to try and keep this in my life, uh, twice a week, maybe, but, um, yeah, we'll see as the foot heals what happens then. You you being being competitive with yourself? I mean, that doesn't sound like you at all, you know? I'm totally surprised, yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's cool, yeah. So kind of glass half full that it wasn't your Achilles, I guess. Achilles is a wildly intricate um, recovery process. Achilles is awful, but still- You've been through that? Nope, uh, but just from watching people through athletics over the years have friends and and, and teammates and stuff yeah. go through it, it's, it's brutal. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, what you're going through is still annoying. I'm also, we're both kind of bummed out. I I can, I'm, I'm, I'm like seven and a half weeks. I'm just starting to get like to the next step of PT with like some good loading with on my ankle. And to be honest with you, this is going to be, uh, I'm really excited to get back to leg training. When, when I moved to Texas, our main goal was like make friends. I was like, I needed to make a life here. I needed to meet people. I didn't know anybody. So my girlfriend and I, whatever, we're both ex-soccer players who were like, all right, we're going to play a bunch fiance, of soccer. Bro, fiance. fiance, wow, that's a good call, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry, John. Um, and we played a ton of soccer and it was so much fun, but I realized I was playing four days a week and I was like, I, I almost can't do any leg training at this point because it's like almost being in season for a sport. You're like, okay, my leg training isn't the goal right now because I'm performance driven. I'm trying to just recover between these, you know, hard bouts of performance. I'm trying to perform well. 
And so actual like strength and, and hypertrophy stuff was like on maintenance. But if we're being totally honest, it was below maintenance. Um, you know, I'd be like, oh, I have a game today, a game tomorrow and a game two days, three days from now. And it's like one day in the middle. I'm like, am I going to train legs that day? Like probably not. And so I've actually seen my, it's interesting. I've seen my body weight stay the same, but I've, I'm lost so much muscle mass over the last year. And I'm not like, this is not like some, like I'm so worried about, but I'm excited. I know when my ankle gets back that I would be, I'm going to do a little bit of a self experiment a little like before and after or whatever, but like a, just like from a muscle muscle memory perspective, yeah. see how qu quickly this stuff does come back and how humbling it is in the beginning. It's just like cool experience. So um, has that ever happened where you like serious injury, like saw some atrophy and then came back and like had to work back up on something? Personally, I've been really lucky with injuries um, throughout my training. The The worst thing that's ever happened to me was in 2012. I uh, tore my labrum two thirds of the way around in my uh, right shoulder doing an Olympic lifting specialization cycle. Max out week. We, we went max snatch and then max clean and jerk the next day. And I caught the jerk like elbow slightly bent and was like, uh, and it was like, <laughs> so um, so, that was pretty awful for like a year, but, um, you know, I, I just, I, I kind of was able to train around it. Like I feel very lucky that in this pursuit of hypertrophy aesthetics, weight training in general, that there's just so many ways to work around things that like, even now with my ruptured plantar fascia, like at a minimum, I can, I could do leg extensions and leg curls. Like the day it happened, I can bike instead of walk. Um, and since I've been able to start implementing, you know, RDLs and, and pendulum and, and things like that back in, in a matter of like a week. So, um, yeah, there's just always ways to work around it. Have you actually, I, are you, you're, I assume you're doing like leg extensions, leg curls or, or just, I am now. Yeah yeah, 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 definitely. I, I go one day to the gym just to like extension. And it's funny. The first time I did it, I was like, you're super, like super, uh, not, not just atrophied, but, um, I was a mega sore with like leg extension, standing ham, uh, standing ham curl. I, I could do a, a 45 degree hip extension. And so yeah. I was just, I was again, workarounds, knee flexion, extension, hip extension, you know, without both feet on the ground. Cause I wasn't loading it like vertically on top of my ankle. I thought I could do RDLs, but just like holding the weight being pulled down into my ankle joint, just being mm -hmm. compressed downward gave me a little pain, but I'm, 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 that's coming up soon where I think I can do hinge movements with like bilaterally. Yeah. Have you done any single leg stuff for the good leg or just kind of stayed away? from? I, I haven't, thing? but, but I've, but I haven't, but that's a consideration. Absolutely. The question is, should I be training the other leg? There's some absolutely good reasons to do that for sure. Probably just laziness. I've decided <laughs> oh, I'm just going to do these four bilateral movements that I can do and I'm going to rip them to shreds. Some, you know, five sets of each, let's say, uh, you know, whatever total volume across the week, I'm going to try and find a couple variations to do those. But yeah, you're, you're probably right. Even like just split squats, single leg RDLs, even, you know, single leg loop bridges and stuff could probably be done really well on the other side. And there's some research that that, both aids in recovery in the other side also maintains muscle on the other side, which is, which just is crazy, which is right? Super crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Beyond my scope, but some, something to do with like, did you, I don't know what the research was, but they were like training like the finger muscle of like the right finger while the left, the same side index finger or the opposite side index finger was like broken. And they saw like a reduced muscle atrophy that like what versus wow. what they would have expected. Something about like the nervous system, like the symmetrical nervous, like the nerves on your right side and left side for the same muscle um, are in some way connected. It's out of my scope, but it was very interesting stuff. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah. Let's, um, we're gonna jump into some of these questions. Uh, I asked some of my group members some questions who would be familiar with our type of discussion. And I was reading through them, I sent them over to you, and I just know that there's gonna be a lot of questions that are answered with some way, shape, or form, or some variation of the words, it depends. And I think that it's, what's helpful is for us to talk about what it depends on, you know? Like, uh, there's so many people, and I'll like swipe through people's Q and A's, like, it depends. I'm like, I'm like looking for the rest of the post. I'm like, well, what does it depend on? Like, I think that's an important thing. So when we go through this, obviously each one of these could be its own podcast, depending on sort of wormhole we want to go down on. But um, all right, first question is going to be how often or when should you change exercises within your programming? Yeah, the main reasons here would probably be um, multiple weeks of stalling progress, not feeling great on your joints in some way, um, 
to use the Isratel term, um, a decrease in stimulus to fatigue ratio. And this is one I actually experienced recently, surprisingly. So for many, many months, the face away cable curl was my jam. Like every time I did it, I was like just the right amount of toasted sore the next day. I got an incredible stimulus. It just felt good on all my joints and everything. And so it's been in my program for three or four months at this point. And I went to do it the other day and it didn't feel great, but didn't overthink it too much. Came back the next week, didn't feel great again. And uh, now I'm at the point where I think I'm, I'm going to swap that out for like an incline dumbbell curl or maybe do it as a single arm variant and see if I can line myself up a little bit better. Um, but I think subtle changes like that are key. Uh, you don't want to come in and make like a massive sweeping change to your program um, unless you know, you or your coach have decided that that is, is the route you're going to go and just kind of, you know, you're, you're completely changing stimuli maybe or, or something like that. I don't want to, I don't want to, are- I don't want to gloss over what you, what you, the, the immediate path that you went down. I asked you how often and when should you change exercise your programming instead of giving time frame a time frame you gave reasons you might change or things you might run into. And so your kind of answer, you know, in a subtle way was like, you're not doing it every X amount of weeks. And that might be a practical heuristic way to think about it, structure it, you can give yourself, but you're changing things for a reason, not for changing things sake. Now, one of those reasons might be somewhere in there is like just novelty and emotional enjoyment and just changing things up. And that's fine. That has a place, but your immediate response was not X amount of weeks. It was, these would be the reasons you would change it. So like this innocent till proven guilty, this like keep it until you have a reason not to is at least the baseline where you'd be coming from. Yeah. Yeah. 100. And then I actually think your point to enjoyment is, is a very, very valid reason. And one that I'm not a machine. Like I also enjoy movements and also burn out on movements. So um, I think that's a completely valid reason too. Yeah, I usually would bring, let's say I'm with a one-on-one coaching client and we're doing a Zoom and we're building their program together. I'll usually just say, hey, we're gonna go through these days, these exercises, and I need you to tell me like how performance feels like it's going. Does it, how like, like you mentioned joint pain or discomfort doing a movement. So are you performing well? What's your joint pain looks like, joint pain like, and are you just sick of doing it? And if those three check out in a direction that would say, well, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That would be the approach we would kind of take. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And is there, are, are there, given those contexts for you in particular, what do you find to be a general time frame in which one of those things might happen? What's the time course for each of those things for you? Have you found, which thing do you run into first? Maybe it's a product of being in my home gym, uh, almost exclusively, but I would say compound movements almost never change. Like I pretty much just keep the same compound movements all the time. Um, I might change sequencing. Like, you know, one example is I was doing my chest supported cable row uh, after my chest supported T-bar row. And so I switched that around and now I'm doing one first and the other second. So it almost gives you that like quick gains, those like newbie gains that you get like neural adaptations for the first couple of weeks, just by putting it in a different place. You're kind of like figuring it out. You're messing around with things. Um, so I do that a lot, um, for like chest movements, I'll change the angle, you know? So I'm like, okay, this, this cycle, it's a costal press, but I'm still going to use my cables. I'm just going to do a clavicular press this cycle or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, compound movements don't change a whole ton, but you have so much more option and variation with uh, single joint movements and especially for the upper body. Like, unfortunately, leg extension and leg curl are kind of about where it starts and ends for me um, with isolation movements for the legs. Uh, occasionally, I guess I'll do a sissy squat. But um, but for upper body, yeah, I mean, I, I tend to change out upper body uh, isolations six weeks, maybe six to eight. I mean, okay, here's how it probably goes. I do mesocycles around six weeks long. So of the isolations that make it the full six weeks, which are probably almost all of them, I won't usually change in the first six weeks. I would say 50% of those isolations will make it over to the next six weeks. And then 50% of those will get swapped out for something similar. Yeah, I think that that's a good way of uh, keeping the big rocks the same and just injecting just enough novelty. And it's not necessarily just for novelty's sake, but it does spice things up just a bit to itch, scratch that novelty itch from mesocycle to mesocycle without like rewriting it from scratch again. Um, I, I find that you, my guess for you is that you'd feel similarly to what I'm about to say is like, let's say we are looking at your program and you're like, all right, day one, block one, exercise one, uh, we're doing RDLs. 
And we're then you and I are on a Zoom. We're talking about your program. We're like, okay, RDLs. Like, how's your performance going? How's the joint pain going? How's the emotional enjoyment? Are you just sick of doing it? Like of those three things is almost, it's highly, highly likely that you're gonna run into the emotional enjoyment block first. Like that's gonna be the first thing with that. Like, I don't know if I've ever, you and I have talked about like this like idea of like training so hard that you get to a point where you're not progressing on something. Like that that exists. That is not like a, just a hypothetical, that's a thing. But like you have said on, on occasion of like, it's rare that that ever happens for me. It's not like I deload because I'm like, oh my God, I've regressed three workouts in a row. It's like other things usually happen first before a lot of this like regression, this performance yeah. regression, this overtrained state. So I feel quite often that like, it's only when I'm like, I'm bored of doing this that uh, I even seek out any variation. That doesn't always mean I'll even do it because you just said, hey man, compound lifts, like the pendulum, the hack, if I have them, it's hard to be like, yeah, you know, I'll swap it out for, you know, unless I love barbell, free free barbell squatting, but it's, it's still, a, you know, at least from a physiological perspective, hard to rationalize doing a back squat over a hack squat if your goal is just lengthened quads for hypertrophy or whatever. But do you find that that's like a thing where you're like, I'm usually not stopping and changing because I'm stop, stop progressing or because I'm in pain. It's usually because I'm like, hey, let me just spice things up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it sometimes is just that like, emotionally, I just don't want to come back in and have to attack that weight. Like when I was doing more of like a, I don't even want to call it like a super glute dominant RDL, but it definitely wasn't as straight leg as you know, the way with where you let the bar, I wasn't letting the bar float out in front of me. It was staying in tight and there was like a slight knee bend. I got up to 385 for seven and they were like really good solid reps oh, Jesus. and i was i was pretty happy with it and then like the next week i was like all right i'm supposed to do 390 and i just started warming up for it and immediately i was like nah i'm gonna cycle the rdl out i'm good 385 for seven was like a solid place to end that and now we're gonna go to like you know a cable rdl or hip extension or whatever it is that i cycled it to this was like a year ago um and then now I'm doing an RDL with the straight legs and I'm adding like a two second pause at the bottom. So it's still an RDL. I'm, I, I swap it out for a different version of an RDL, but we're still doing that movement. It's just a, a novel way for me to continue kind of attacking and progressing that movement without having to go 390, 395, 400, 405. I think I think intuitively the, the decision you've made is also to just reduce, to find uh, exercises or at least in the aggregate use exercises that mimic that stimulus with less axial load. You know, you were like, man, if I can get my uh, lower body. So let's say we're talking bent knee RDL, stiff leg versus stiff legged RDL. You're like, well, I can probably do a stiff leg RDL and make it more ham dominant with like a hundred plus less pounds potentially. Yes. And if I need some of that more, Knee, knee, more knee bending in conjunction with hip flexion. Maybe I get that with split squatting. Some, you know, I get some amount of that in split squatting and leg pressing and, and some of those movements where I have hip flexion and, you know, whatever, at least like 90 degrees of knee flexion ish. Um, and so that that's, that's like an argument of like regressing from a deadlift to an RDL. I say regressing, but I just mean like moving to an exercise where you use less load on purpose uh, mm -hmm. as independent benefit, you know, where you're like, well, I'm going to take out what you did was took out uh, you know, you took out as a little bit of the glutes, which made you weaker, you know, mechanically. And so you're able to use a little bit less load in your stiff leg. So that, that, that makes like intuitively you were like, fuck man, I don't want to do 400 pounds. So this is just like, I'm, you know, I'll do this stiff leg. Cause you know, and you get to use a hundred less pounds, which is great. Yeah. But yeah, I get that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then sometimes like, I remember times in the past too, where like you just start pushing a movement too hard, especially like a compound hingey type movement. And there's just like a small tweak in the QL or like the SI or something like that. And so there's like another really good reason to be like, okay, it's not that I didn't stop progressing. Like I just kind of got injured and yeah, it's like a catch study, which, which one, which one takes priority there? Like you probably may have stopped progressing, but then you got injured first, maybe because you were trying to progress when you shouldn't be. There's like a whole bag of worms there, but, um, but yeah, a lot of good reasons to change movements out. Let's talk about rep ranges. Let's talk about primarily selecting them in terms of construction of a mesocycle, like as a one-off and then progressing, you know, using change in rep range as a form of variation, whether or not you even do that at all. Um, and so you're like, okay, I'm, you know, my, my lengthened quad work, this meso is going to be pendulum. And then your next choice needs to be how many reps am I doing? Uh, tempo rest. And so let's just focus on rep range for a second or rep number of reps or whatever method you would use. How are you going about making that decision? Yeah. Um, 
In my training career, I've always kind of veered toward the lower reps. And so when all this research came out that says you can go from five to 30 reps and basically get equal hypertrophy, like a lot of people look at that and they're like, sweet, I can go light. Like I don't need to go heavy. And to me, I'm like, shit, I don't need to go light. I can just always go heavy. Um, and so that tends to be where I air on almost all movements. Now, um, compound lower body movements are always like a five to eight rep range. Uh, compound uppers are usually a six to 10 rep range and then isolation movements. I usually just hang out in the like eight to 10. Like I usually don't go above 10 a whole lot. If I get above 10, that feels like a really long set to me. Um, and part of that is because of tempo. Um, like if I was somebody that moved at like a two Oh one Oh or two one Oh yeah. Two Oh one Oh or something like that. I feel like you would need to do more reps, but the, the amount of time under tension that I'm getting on a set of 10 of any movement is like a minute. I mean, if I watch my video, I have to, I have to edit my videos down and sometimes take reps out of my video just to fit a 10 rep set into into Instagram. So, um, so yeah, I think that there's definitely that caveat to it. So maybe my eight to 10 rep range is like someone else's 12 to 15 or something along those lines. Uh, but I do think it is movement dependent as I kind of got to, um, like a dual cable lateral raise. I feel like I can do that eight to 10 rep range and get a ton out of it, but like a dumbbell lateral raise and eh, I don't know, eight to 10 feels like a little bit low for me. So I, so I do think there's specific nuance as well there. How about you? If you had to, if you had to, uh, if you had to like, um, you know, take what you, what you feel intuitively and try and backtrack out some rationale. So like I do, I do this too sometimes where like somebody go, Hey, why'd you pick this rec range? And like intuitively, like I knee jerked and was like, you know, I don't love doing a four to six rep glute bridge, let's say. And part of me is like, well, why did I immediately think, okay, this is probably better slightly north of that. Uh, and you had said, let's say, take your lateral raise, dumbbell lateral raise, cable lateral raise. And dumbbell lateral raise, just, did you feel like my knee jerk and we can pick this apart and if there's any logic behind it whatsoever. But I thought was like, it's only hard and it's harder for a smaller percentage of the range of motion. And maybe if that's not true, maybe it's it, ha it covers an equal amount of range of motion. It's hardest in the short position and, and uh, disproportionately hard in the short position because we are weaker yeah. in the short position. So it is, you know, you could say, well, okay, the cable lateral race is just as disproportionately hard in the, in the length of position, but we're stronger there on mm -hmm. generally on that half of the curve. And so that doesn't feel like an exercise where, or it feels like an exercise I'm getting more out of each rep, uh, more, what more, more quality tension would be a slightly vague thing that would come into my brain. And so I do, I agree with you hundred percent when you were like, Hey, cable lateral raise, man, I can do, I'm, I've been doing some descending rep work with that 10, eight, eight, six, six. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, like I can do, you know, I get a lot out of each rep maybe because it matches the strength profile a little bit more. And when I'm doing dumbbell laterals, the idea of doing six, I don't want to say technique goes to shit because that's a practical reason. A lot of times when you take some of those movements, technique goes to shit. And I just would prefer if my, if my client's like, Hey, I could do 10 reps with the 15 pounds, uh, or I could do, uh, five reps with the 20 pounds. And I've seen, you know, five to 30 reps is all the same. I, without knowing right away, I would rather them do the 10 rep set. Just like out of experience, it's usually like, okay, it's like five, like grinders with a big shrug versus like this weight that you can control a little bit better. Again, if your technique was totally perfect in both, I would have a hard time saying one is better than the other, but do you find that like that short length in position, maybe being one factor that goes into like where your intuition thinks in terms of rep ranges? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, you just don't get a lot out of those short overload movements in lower rep ranges because the first half of the movement is, it almost feels useless. Like it's so disproportionately harder at the top. And I also think about like, like a spider curl as an example too, where like the cable evens that out a little bit, but it's still like way, way, way harder at the top um, with a dumbbell. I mean, you actually get like zero resistance at the bottom. It's almost like the equivalent of a lateral raise. So it's not even until you get to like halfway where, where it's actually challenging for you at that point. So it certainly is movement dependent. And then the other thing about those super short overloaded movements is they don't often have a really long range of motion. That's what I was going to bring so up. Yep. Like total distance move time under tension. Yeah. 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 One of the things that I, one of the ones that comes up for me sometimes is the leg press. I think about the leg press and 
it, it, you know, people are like, all right, just because it's hardest at the bottom doesn't mean it's it actually gets you to a, a really long muscle length, particularly if you're looking at quads. And so part of me is like, well, it's, it's hardest. It has a lengthened resistance profile, but it's, it's really a mid range exercise, mid to lengthened exercise, unless you unless you have a great, amazing Cybex squat press with heel elevated shoes and you and you have already decent ankle mobility. And so it's possible. But I'd say for a lot of people, like I look at the leg press and I'm like, push comes to shove. I'd rather this in like an, an eight to 15 rep range than a five to eight. Now that might be, you know, d d again, depends for each person. But I find that when I'm looking at people's leg presses, like I'm press. like, doesn't, doesn't move that much. You're not getting as much depth here. It's not getting, you're not getting as much range of motion here per rep. And is that, is it logical for me to then think, well, maybe we want more of these or is it, or is it illogical to, and just say, Hey, well, who cares if you get more of them, you can get less of them at heavier load. And it's going to be the same thing, but yeah, that's where my intuition goes, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I think range of motion. Similarly, I do get a lot out of like that six to eight rep range on leg press, especially you when are that person like, though. You are that person. Do you like, heel elevated <laughs> shoes? You're like fucking taping the wedge to the foot plate, you know, which I think is, yeah. I saw someone do that, like glue the leg, the thing to the foot plate, you know? Yeah. Have you seen those things that Charlie Jung talks about? Uh, the guy from RP, uh, yeah. he has, he's now has these, these lifts that they go in your shoe and they're basically ah, the first wedges lifts. Your shoe. Yeah. Yeah. They're like by VersaGrip, I think the same okay. company they make them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are cool. You add them to your heel elevated shoe already? I, I don't, but uh, but I'm sure I, he does. I've heard him talk about it before. Yeah, that's something that I've recommended in my group lately for those who are like, hey, I'm really looking to. You know, it's it's been a long time since wedges have come out, like or at least like the solo wedges that are that you can modify the angle individually. Like wedges are all the rage, but it, when it does come to like your hack squats and your like commercial gym hack squat leg press. I'm like, man, a pair, a pair of heel elevated shoes for like 100, 150 bucks, like goes a long way to getting more out of those moves, I think, at least knee flexion wise. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So, okay. So when it comes to changing rep range from meso to meso, do you more so highly rank a very general understanding of which rep range is going to be best for me in this movement and to go far out of that, like standard deviations outside of that? Is it is just for, for variation's sake, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're like, hey, my, my pendulum, I love that in a five to eight. And like, I just don't see a, raise, a reason for like, this meso I'll do five to eight, next meso I'll do 12 to 15. Is this periodization of rep ranges at least in a large scale, not of high value when you're creating your meso to meso? Yeah, it's not for me. Uh, the only way I would deviate above like 10 reps at highest on the pendulum would be during a uh, metabolic phase. And as I've kind of discussed before, like my preferred method of achieving this metabolic stress is uh, same muscle group supersets as opposed to like longer duration sets. So you'll much likelier see me do like eight reps of one movement directly into eight reps of another movement than to see me do a 15 to 20 rep set. Yes, and I think that that those actually are two different stimuli. You know, one of them is like one approach to failure over a long set versus this might be two approaches to failure, maybe even deeper into fatigue. So I agree with you that I, a, a tool for like, hey, we're gonna do metabolic training wouldn't just be like jack up the set numbers. Um, yeah, I agree with that, it's particularly for compound lifts where technique breakdowns are uh, more likely with the average individual, like high rep back squats, high rep RDLs, just feels like not something that I would ever do for like variation sake, we're gonna jack up the rep range. The enjoyment is just so low. I mean, yeah. like, the fatigue is so much more, in your heart and, and lungs than it is like actually in your muscles. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about rest times. We're gonna take another variable of this like program construction discussion and say like, I think uh, my first introduction to like a way of thinking about this um, from a very logical perspective versus like, oh, this is what the research says is like the RP style four figure model of rest times where Mike would say something like, you know, rest until the target muscle can do at least five reps because we think north of five is hypertrophy. Uh, rest until your synergist muscles and your cardiovascular system come back to baseline so they are not the limiting factor. And then rest, I think the fourth one would be your nervous system or your just like general state of readiness would be how I would say it. And so Mike would say rest until those, you can check those four boxes and then go. And whatever that is for a certain exercise, you're good to go if you can check all five, four of those boxes. And then there's probably another camp of People who, persons who would say something more along the lines of like, hey, this research came out that said three minutes outperformed one minute and thus we're gonna do three minutes on everything. Is there like somewhere in the middle or which of those would you say you align a little bit more with? 
Yeah. I mean, surely if you're doing like a strength or metabolic phase, then you have like outliers that would extend one way or the other way. Um, but if we're just talking like straight sets for hypertrophy, I tend to align more with the Isretel approach, but I will say that almost ubiquitously people underestimate the amount of time they need to be able to check those boxes. Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I would, I would, do I would say the four figure model and then I put a comma and then I would remind you that it's it's very likely that more rest outside of a metabolic pursuit, more rest is never a bad thing outside of, okay, I don't, I don't, I don't want you spending more time in the gym than you have available. And if we're doing metabolic training, then the, you know keeping the rest times on the shorter end is a specific to the outcome goal that we want. But it's usually like, hey, I want you to check all four of those boxes and then rest another 30 seconds just to be sure, yeah. just because that's is probably no downside to you resting a little bit longer. Yeah. In our programs, I outline like what I expect to be like the norm per movement. Right. So we have like lower body compounds, two to three plus minutes. And that's just because like, I can't actually tell a group of 90% women that you have to rest three minutes between sets. So it's, it's two to three plus minutes for, for, uh, for, for lower body compounds and then upper body compounds are two plus minutes. And, uh, isolation movements are one to two minutes. So as long as you're kind of falling in those ranges and more or less checking the boxes that you mentioned, then I think that that, that gets you in the ballpark. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, and, and and let's just give a little bit to the listener of like, where, where would that, why are you structuring it that way in the sense that like, why is the two to three minute lower body compound going to be, or why is it going to be two to three minutes? And why would it like a upper body isolation be a one to two minute? Like, where did you come up with like, you know, what those numbers might be? Yeah. I mean, so, so I actually fall on higher spectrums of those, um, to optimize my performance, but, but for most people, I find those to be ranges that are based on the fatigue that the movement creates. Um, that fatigue is both systemic and local, um, man, like a set of pendulum, just, I, I get out of the machine hobbling. I'm breathing heavy. I rewatch my video. That's like a minute and a half already. And then I still have to like sit there and think for at least another minute and a half before I even start thinking about like getting into the machine. Right. And then once I'm in the machine, it's like, stand there, take a breath, Procrastinate. Up, stand there again, you know? So by the time I'm fucking doing my set, it's like been five minutes. Yeah. 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 So I, and then, so what you're basically alluding to is like, if you take something like a pendulum and then we look back at those four you know, factor model of like cardiovascular system, synergist muscles, local muscle fatigue, back ready to do at least five reps, emotional state of readiness. Like they're gonna yeah. take longer for a pendulum than a bicep curl where for a bicep curl, the limiting time frame might literally just be the local muscle. You know, you might be emotionally fine, cardiovascularly fine. There are, you know, almost no synergists that are going to get a lot of fatigue here. And so for a bicep curl, you might be like, hey, when my local muscle can do this, which might be more in like the 90 seconds to two and a half minutes, depending on what we're talking about, who we're talking about. But it's going to be lower on the spectrum in terms of like, for the pendulum, you might find that your quads are actually ready to perform another decent set in 90 seconds, two minutes. But like, if I talk to you 90 seconds or two minutes, you know, and you're Mike Isertel, you're still hurling, hurling over the to over the toilet or the garbage or something like that. Like, um, you know, it's funny. If, if you asked me, like, could my quads perform this set at two minutes? You're like, probably yes. But if you looked at me like emotionally, I'm like, I don't want to go back in there, you know? And so that's kind of, that, that makes a lot of sense to me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. My soul isn't ready for yeah, the pendulum. Yeah, yeah. And then I also tend to take advantage of that rest period for the arms. And I almost always program biceps and triceps as alternating movements with like, you know, 60 seconds rest between each. So then you come back to the bicep movement and you've rested for two minutes plus the time it took you to do the tricep exercise. Um, and so that's like a super easy way around that too. The, the first time I, uh, that Lindsay ever programmed for me, like over a year ago or so, she had programmed like alternating supersets, maybe 60 second rest. And so maybe it was like a cross cable extension, high pulley cross cable, and then a facing away cable. So you just like move the cables down, 60 seconds do the curls. And I literally was in such bad shape. And and it, that's not fair to say as a general statement, but I literally messaged her after the first day and I was like, this is too systemic for me. I was like, I'm not recovered in between my facing away curls. And then I moved the cables up and I, I only have like 45 seconds at that point before I have to go. And I was like, this is too fast for me. Like I just, and so that's sometimes important to, like, I was like, I know what I need to perform. And it felt like, 
cardio. And so you might be, you A, you might be in better shape. B, you might be resting longer than 60 seconds. And so it might still work just fine. Um, but, or certain exercises that were like more or less fatiguing. But I, I found that funny. That was something that I was like excited to do. And I was like, anytime I do this, it becomes systemic. And that's always been a, my cardiovascular system, whether that's an asthma related thing or just like a lack of working on that adaptation has just been a, such a weak point that, no matter, you know, antagonist supersets have all these like positive research. I, I can't. Nope. No, thanks. It's very metabolic for me, whether it's systemically, it's very systemically metabolic for me. Um, and so it's just been a funny thing. She laughed. She's like, are you fucking kidding? She's like 60. She's like, you're doing tricep extension. I was like, I'm huffing and puffing afterwards. You know, I like, can't. Yeah, it's systemic, too systemic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You and I both struggle with uh, with that, it seems. But um, you can also assume that if I say that I program 60 seconds rest between something, it's probably more like a minute and a half or two minutes for me. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Let's, uh, you know, there was a podcast with you and Abel and Dave from a while back and I actually, uh, went back and I've listened to a bunch of them. I love, uh, you guys have good chats. I find the three of you to be an interesting trio mostly because you're not, you don't always, like, I, I think I know you the best by far of those three. And I just like listening to the other two. Cause I'm like, okay, I can imagine what's going on in Brian's head a little bit. I think Abel <laughs> comes at it from like a, another perspective, which I love. Um, and it's just been, it's a good crew, you three, I love it. And so one of the things that was discussed was like, uh, some of this research, honestly, the more research that comes out, the more it shines a light on, I don't, I want to put this in a way that's that the listener can like actually take it away. It's like the more we realize that the threshold needed in terms of proximity to failure, how close to failure you need to go to make gains, the more we learn that it can be a bit lower. I'm not suggesting that it's lower, but we just keep learning that scientifically, man, four or five reps from failure is still stimulative for hypertrophy. And so the able, I think it was able who had asked the question, he was like, how do we reconcile this research that comes out that keeps lowering this bar? How do we reconcile that with a slew of people who are going to the gym all the time and not making changes to their physique if the bar is in fact lower and lower and lower over time. Yeah, this uh, this is one of the big things Abel was uh, was targeting in our in our side chats as well. We had like a, a long ass WhatsApp message covering this because it is very interesting. I think he actually asked it to Eric Helms maybe on one of his recent podcasts um, as well. But I think that uh, for me, the reason or the way that you can reconcile that is that we know that if you're going to be further from failure, that you have to increase volume. But these people are literally just doing the same amount of volume that other people are doing. So that's kind of, of my stance and, and thoughts on that. There's a misunderstanding in the research, I think. Uh, actually, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. Here's my understanding of it. Maybe I'm misunderstanding it. But when somebody says a, um, you know, three RIR and zero RIR get the same growth, are the research says, and my understanding is that is that that's when volume is equated. And so it's not like this one set of three RIR and this one set of zero RIR give me the same growth. It is, you know, the amount of volume, you'd have to do more volume of three RIR sets to match. And it's not necessarily, it'd be a fractional approach here. We're just talking more of like hypothetically speaking, but you'd have to do X number of sets at three RIR to match the one set stimulus of zero RIR. And what, what we're, you're kind of saying is like, yeah, we find out that you don't need to go as close to failure to cause growth, but the further from failure you are, the more of that stuff you'll have to do to equate the amount of actual stimulus that you'll get. And generally speaking, the research shows that we're kind of dog shit at estimating RIR. Most people are much further than they think. And so if people are going into the gym and maybe they're doing stimulative sets, they're, they're two, three, four, five RIR, maybe even four, five, six RIR, which still might be stimulative. They're not, they are not equating the volume by doing more sets. They're doing three sets, like I'm doing three sets, but they're at four, five, six. Someone who's making actual changes over time is at zero, one, two. And so that's kind of how we reconcile it. Yeah, yeah. I think that more than likely, like people spinning their wheels in the gym, when I look around the gym, when I go to the commercial gym, I don't see people at three RIR for the most part. Like the people that are at three RIR or or closer to failure are are making gains. They're in good shape. They look like they work out type thing. I think the people that able and he I don't want to put words in his mouth either, but I think this was mostly in reference to a lot of that new research from Zordos and Helms that they've been covering where they're like, you can be at seven or eight RIR, you know, and that shit is just like mind boggling because you're sitting there and you're like, okay, so I take a 15 rep max and I do sets of eight. Okay. So how many sets of eight do I need to do with my 15 rep max? to equal 
two sets of 15 to failure. I don't know. Right. Uh, Quite a a few, a lot more than two. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I think that's kind of the way you have to think about these things. There was actually a program, uh, on T nation way back in the day. I think it was maybe Chad Waterbury, but it was a 10 by three. And you take your, your 10 rep max and you do 10 sets of three with like a, a short a one minute rest between sets or something like that. So in that sense, you're looking at it and you're like, okay, well, you're starting at seven RIR, but by the time that you get to that final set, you're, you're pushing up against failure, I'm sure. So that's like one way to approach it where as long as you're hitting the same number of reps, you can just keep going until you hit failure. And eventually you're going to hit failure. You're going to have the stimulus that you need there, uh, which should produce results. But what we tend to see in the gyms with these people spinning their wheels is that they go in, they throw 95 pounds on the bench press. I literally saw a guy do this the other day Threw 95 pounds on the bench press, did it for sets of like eight to 10, uh, with his feet up, like not really even, you know, the final rep basically looked like the first rep. There wasn't a slow in rep speed or anything like that. He did three sets and then he moved on to pull downs where he did, he did the exact same thing. So, um, I think it's those situations where that dude could get results doing that, but he would have to do 10 sets of that and then 10 sets of pull downs. And, and nobody actually does that. Yeah. I, I would actually reconcile this by saying that it's a, that's actually not a scenario that happens as often as we think. I don't think there are a lot of people who are going to the gym consistently. When I say consistently, I mean 200 times a year, 150 to 200 times a year and training all their sets sub five RIR with good technique and decent exercise selection and not making progress. I don't think those people exist or they don't exist in this like, you know, everyone's like, yeah, there's, I even made it sound that way when I asked a question, like this whole slew of people are going to the gym and not seeing changes. Those people I don't think are training 150 to 200 times a year within let's say five reps from failure with decent exercise selection and, and decent sleep and decent nutrition um, I do, and, and not missing workouts and not taking weeks and two, week, two weeks off. I actually don't think that archetype really does exist quite as much as we think. Um, there are, are certainly people who you see at the gym who are like, wow, they're not in great shape, but like that could be for so many other reasons. It's not necessarily yeah. that like they're, um, you know, that there's like some dissonance here between the research and, and this person. So that, that makes sense. That was kind of where I was going at where like, they're probably further from fail than they think. They're probably less consistent than we think they are by watching them mm-hmm. uh, or they're just along their journey and they are gonna make gains and we're seeing them in a snapshot in time where like if they kept, who for all we know, if they keep doing what they're doing, we see them in a year, they are, you know, have made some sort of, progress yeah i think abel's been at the same gym where he lives in macedonia <laughs> for like half a decade or something so he was he was literally talking so about i've seen like these the same, same people people come in and like yeah yeah and the and and that if that's the case usually what i would say is this person's usually probably like a two to three to two to, two to three times per week trainee and yeah. it, when you combine less total weekly volume with any form of suboptimal actual execution when you're in there it's like you don't have the quantity to offset the lack of quality here that you end up in a maintenance mode or the effort. Yeah. 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 The quality meaning. Yeah. Like the proximity to failure, all of that stuff. Yeah. 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 For sure. Cool. So I, this is a scenario that happens. I'm sure you got, you guys run a group, you guys run Paragon, you have your own evolved training systems. And this is a scenario where I find one of the most important things to provide people with is a heuristic, a tool, a way of progressing that they can mentally digest and apply. And I think once there are so many ways, you and I have talked about this top set back off, you could do pyramid style training, you could do straight sets with a rep range and a descending RIR and static RIR. And there's so many ways to get hypertrophy and there's so many ways to progress. It's about giving people the tools to understand what they have to do specifically when they get in the gym. I find that to be something I'm very passionate about. I want people to walk into the gym and know specifically what their goal is for today to progress. What inevitably happens at some point is you run across a scenario where a client, one of two things happens. They did the same load as last week and they did not beat. So they either matched what they did or lost or regressed in some magnitude, or they went up in load. And when they went up in load, they dropped reps. So maybe they did hundred pounds for 10 last week and now they're doing 120 pounds for seven or eight. And they're not, you know, they have this moment of like, oh my God, I didn't progressively overload. I, I, I fucked up. What do I do? Did I, did I not overload this week? Is that a scenario you've come across and how might we go about like structuring the conversation to, you know, pull this person back from the ledge? Well, if they really didn't make progress and didn't change variables and they just went in with the same weight and the same RIR and didn't progress, then you say, 
cool, maybe your readiness wasn't where it was supposed to be or any other number of factors. Let's come back next week and hit this again, right? Next week, maybe the same thing happens. Well, now you say, congratulations, you're an intermediate. Good work. You're not going to make progress all the time. Um, but like in reality, cause that's mostly in jest, um, you know, you and I both tend to program in a manner that increases effort week to week. And so if you're following some sort of paradigm where you're going like three, two, one, zero RIR over four weeks or two, two, one, one, zero over five weeks or, or whatever it is, then you kind of have like a built-in mechanism to allow yourself to, to create some overload. Like even if you did 215 for, for seven and the week before you did 205 for eight or something like that. Um, I don't even think that you moved backwards. Like that's just a, a step in your process. And maybe it's like a lateral step. Like maybe you're crossing the river on lily pads and you like have to go left before you can get back in line and, and go in the direct path forward type thing. Um, but I think lateral moves are totally cool. Um, I think like, like, man, you and I talked about this on the very first podcast I was on, but just like creating any sort of like little win for the day. Like that's why I will fucking add two partials to a set and be like, I won, I made progress. Um, because the way that you frame things in your mind is really going to determine how you feel about the way that it went. Um, and so if you're framing things in your mind that unless you increase reps and or weight and match reps, uh, otherwise it's not progress, then that's unfortunate because you're going to have a lot of those over the next 15 or 20 years of your journey here. And um, yeah, I think I'll stop there and let you jump in. <laughs> yeah, we are in, we're in total agreement there. I think that some of the questions that come to mind when I have this question, I want to, I want to get some further context from the client is how much, how much did you regress? Let's say like, what is the actual context? Did you do 10, 100 pounds for 10 and then hundred pounds for nine? Or did you do hundred pounds for 10 and then hundred pounds for six, right? And those are two different scenarios. If you're like one or one rep shy, even two rep shy, like you said, so many factors go into acute performance that to me that like, that might actually have been you matching under a greater state of fatigue. That would have been, you know, stimulus wise, just as hard. Um, and if you go from 10, 10 reps down to six, that's a bit more of like, okay, acute factors are either really piling up here or it's a systemic thing. We need to deload or deload this movement or whatever that is. We either need to address it or we don't. And I think if it's a very small regression or some people, sometimes people are even freaking out a little bit that they just matched last week. It's like, okay, we're, we're not doing anything. Like you said, you're just coming back next week and you try and hit this again. Even if you regress a rep or two, to me, that's not indicative of like, oh, you've, you know, th that's still likely under the realm of acute factors that like, let's see what happens next week sort of thing. I also think that another good point you brought up is like, when is this happening in the mezzo? And I think that that's a thought that I have sometimes where like, um, it's, a, it's not a big one, but like, you know, we start our mesocycle on average, depending on how you slice it up, you start on average further from failure. And what you've done then is you've allowed yourself progression that has nothing to do with you getting stronger. You've literally just stopped shy of what you're capable of. And you've almost given yourself very uh, easy opportunity to make numerical progression in the logbook for a couple of weeks. And so if someone's like, hey, Jordan, second week into the mezzo, I didn't, you know, I'm down a rep. It's like, well, my gut says you probably started too close to failure, or at least that's a consideration I might think. It's like, well, you most people should be progressing for the first three weeks. And if you don't, then it's not the end of the world. You still might be fine, still growing, still, you know, close enough to failure, obviously, because you're trying really hard. But I might take a small step back and be like, maybe there's, uh, from the way we're structuring the early part of the mezzo, someplace to optimize a little bit more. Maybe instead of starting at a zero, one RIR, which you might have done if this is the case, maybe we're closer to that two or three RIR when we start. And then the final question was, or the final point was another one that you made, which was, does this happen again next week is a context I wanna know. It's like, if someone's like, hey, Jordan, I didn't beat what I did last week. I'm like, okay, great, data logged. Tell me what happens next week. Because if you're like 10, then eight, then five, that's more of a trend that again, probably rules out acute factors, probably more systemic factors that probably need addressing more so than like, okay, you had a bad night's sleep, you forgot your pre-workout, you, you know, you didn't have as many carbs in the last 24 hours, whatever some of those acute factors might be. Um, and then there's the, I fucking love the lily pad comment because that's like, that totally puts it in perspective where to me, there was a, I forgot which podcast was on, there was a discussion of like, um, just hypertrophy is, is this idea of like progressive overload. I almost think of these week to week progressions as a 
not how hypertrophy is going is happening. The progression isn't causing hypertrophy. It is the training hard that's causing hypertrophy. And it's the pursuit of that progression week to week that will make sure that month to month, meso to meso, macro to macro, you're getting stronger. And so I'm not so concerned if you do a sidestep lily pad, if you do 100 pounds for 10 and then next week 120 for eight and you're like, oh my God, I don't know if, you know, I calculated volume load and that is the same or even intuitively you're like, I don't know if that's progression. I don't care because guess what you're gonna do next time? You're gonna try and do 120 for nine and you're gonna, you have a more objective route forward now with your new weight, which is if someone's like, hey, I did 120 for eight this week, I did 100 for 10 last week, did I progress? I'm like, I don't really care. Was your set close to failure? at 120 for eight, they're like, yeah, I'm like, great. We move forward from here. Um, and I just want everyone to know that like week to week progression isn't where you're getting your hypertrophy. It is the tool that you're using. Yeah, it's, it's, it is where you're getting the hypertrophy, but it is more of like the, the, just the pursuit of progression that ensures month to month, macro to macro progress. It's not, oh my God, I didn't beat this week. I didn't get hypertrophy this week. That rant kind of makes some sense. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the philosophical view of progressive overload where uh, you're progressing because you built muscle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would that and to me. Can you do you? So this this like um, who was it? Brian Miner was the first person to be, to give that like reversed sort of view of progressive overload of like you uh, progress because you've gotten stronger, not like it is the forcing of the increase in load that causes you to get stronger. And it's like I'm not. I don't. I, I'm saying this a bit more as a discussion point, but like, who cares? You know, like, is it, <laughs> yeah. does it matter which of these things is it chicken or the egg? Like, do I care? I care that I care that if I want to be bigger than I am right now, I need to be at some point moving more load for more reps than I am right now. And that means at some point I need to try and do those things. And that means I need to have a plan to get there. And that plan is any of a plethora of different uh, progression models and schemes. And so I, I just, I read the whole article. I remember this whole discussion. I was like, does it fucking matter whether it's like I'm getting stronger so I add more load or I push myself to do more load, it makes me stronger. It's a, it's an intellectual discussion, but at the end of the day, it's like having this progression Thank model. You. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I I mean, it's it's beautiful in concept. Like, you True. know, when I first read it, I was like, oh, this is this is so beautiful. It, makes, know, it just, makes sense what he's saying. I agree, yeah, I actually yeah. agree with what he's saying 100%. But yeah. I think in, in actual practice, what I found is that if you just sit there waiting to see that you've gotten stronger, you usually wait too long. Um, I think you do have to have a little bit of like that go-getter attitude and really try to like go make that progression and not at the point where you're going to compromise form or, you know, go past what your intended RIR is or anything like that. But you do have to go into the set kind of with an intention to, to exceed, to excel. It's like if you decided to train at two RIR forever, nothing but two RIR forever, you'd get stronger, of course. But every time you went into the gym, you'd have to recalibrate that two RIR with your new strength. And you'd have to almost like intuitively do more over time instead of like the logbook telling you, you must do more this week. And most of the time it works out fine. Maybe sometimes it doesn't, but I'd take that like more proactive approach than like, I'm gonna go two RIR every time and I'll only add when I feel like I'm stronger. It's like mm -hmm. that probably, that person, I'm not betting on that person unless they're like highly, highly intuitive with that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then the last point I'll make is uh, execution PRs too, or something to, to keep in mind. Like if this person lost a rep uh, with the same weight say, but like, man, when I finished, my quads were so torched after the split squats this week. And last week, you know, it was mostly my glutes or my low back or something like that. Like, man, I'd say those nine reps you did um, are actually better than the 10 that you did the prior week. That's oh, a huge point. The, the question I'll ask is, did anything, you know, are we comparing apples to apples? Was your, did you get better, more depth? I mean, listen, if you got nine reps this week, but 11 reps before, but you got another three inches of good high quality within your active range reps, or inches of range of motion, that, that actually is more stimulus. And as far as progressive overload goes, totally yes. I, that happens so often where I'll take on a client and we're looking at their like whole mesocycle progression and they're like, I went down. And I'm like, yeah, you went down because your technique got amazing, which meant you got more stimulus per rep, which means you also got more fatigue per rep and you're not doing 12 shit reps, you're getting more out of eight good reps with the same load. And so that's true, that has to be a variable that's isolated. Otherwise it could very well be range of motion, tempo, technique that has changed. I would want to be respectful of your time. We're coming up on an hour-ish. I would be remiss if we didn't have a brief five-minute discussion of some of the, the Brett Contreras cast stuff, just because I had a lot of people who know that like both of us have, you know, whatever we've, you know, we have been influenced by Kaz and some of his work and obviously Brett as well over the years. Um, and so 
we were talking a smidge off air. I didn't want to go too deep. I wanted to make sure there was some of the conversation that was new for uh, the live show here. Um, and so, okay, so recently, just context-wise, Kaz from N1, Coach Kaz and Brett Contreras were on the Revive Stronger podcast talking all things glute hypertrophy, glute training. Um, and there, it's a three-parter. If you're super nerding out, you want to get in there and, and see if you can decipher what the hell they're talking about. I re highly recommend watching it just because there's like a lot of like, you know, Brett, like holding up the paper to the screen and like, you know, like um, and there were points I was listening to it. And I was like, I guess I got to sit down and watch it. Were there some points that jumped out to you that that you have an opinion on? Well, so I think mostly the unfortunate part is that Cass basically got the um, responsibility of all the work that people that learned from Cass did. So all of his disciples that post these super polarizing messages like hip abduction is zero glutes. Um, like Cass got blamed for all, all of that. And so Brett came in with this huge chip on his shoulder. And when you combine that, he's like this super immature overgrown child that he's made his entire existence on this idea of training the glutes and the hip thrust specifically, uh, which is a short overload movement. Um, oh man, it just, it was just so awful. Like the whole thing, there wasn't like a whole lot of constructive work that came out of it. Um, and one of the things that I, I pointed out on, on Cass's most recent post he did about triceps, he was showing a, um, a one-arm tricep kind of cable kickback type the thing. lateral head. Yeah. Uh, lateral head shortened. And, uh, and I was looking at the graph of, of how much each one was, was biased. And if you look at it as like a hundred percent between the three tricep heads, it was like 30% medial, 30% long and 40% uh, lateral. So it's literally like there's this movement that's a lateral shortened movement, but it's only 40% lateral. So I'm almost sure like that, even if Cass were to do one of these for the hip abduction machine, which I don't know if he has or not, it's probably like 45% piriformis, like 30% glute, like some TFL and like whatever else in there. So, um, so I don't know, man, it's just like, it's, it's all super gray. And, and I have some additional thoughts on like Brett and programming glute stuff, but, uh, but yeah, take, what are your thoughts on the whole thing? Um, I think that there's, I'm looking forward to more research in, in this discussion of whether or not all muscle, all muscles grow, um, in relationship to their, like the training position, the same. And so I'm interested if that is actually an area of research where we actually do find out, like, you know, there's, you and I talked off air about that bicep study that everyone's like, oh my God, biceps, no more length in position. Um, and I'm curious, Brett was trying to make an argument that based on leveraging and some EMG stuff that glute uh, tension and, and growth and stimulus might actually be highest in the short position, which would go counter to what we see in, in the, the you know wide array of research that points to more lengthened positions being more hypertrophic. Uh, and so I didn't think his arguments were mega compelling, but I just think that that throwing that idea out there of like, hey, let's not, let's still make sure we're vetting this idea of do all muscles respond this way or are there structural moment-based, leverage-based reasons why some muscles might respond differently to short position like the position. So again, I didn't think it was mega compelling uh, information, but just the throwing that idea out there is an idea that I will continue to try not to be so dogmatic about and just keep my uh, ears and eyes open to, you know, research that might change my mind. Um, the big, first of all, super painful to listen to. You didn't listen to the third part. I would, I would challenge you to go listen to the third part because it is a dumpster fire of a discussion. And I would, I would want you, I want you to DM me exactly what minute you want to turn it off. And I'd be surprised if you make it through 10 minutes. So I would be, I want you to be like, Hey, on minute eight seventeen, I wanted to turn it off. Like, and so what, I, one other thing I would say is, so here's Brett arguing his entire life. And you're right. His entire identity is glute training and the hip thrust. And so when you're so tied to that, it's, you're just, effectively more unlikely to change or less likely to change your mind on some of this stuff because it would mean an entire breakdown of the entire thing, everything you've built. Here you have an, an argument that your entire life is based around training in the sharp position. You are trying to argue this to somebody who you're trying to convince this person that the short position, Kaz, you're trying to convince Kaz that the short position is really important. You're trying to convince it to somebody who took the exercise that you 
claim you made and turned it into a better exercise for the short position. Like, I just found this entire arcing irony of like, he took your hip thrust that you supposedly created and turned it into a better exercise for the short position. You're talking to somebody who very much agrees that training short position has a place. This is not, um, you know, Kaz is, on the spectrum of like, should we train the short position? I think he's in the in the camp more than most of like, we should do that, whether it's for orthopedic yeah. reasons, metabolic training. And I just found that to be a mega irony. I'm like, dude, if the short position is so smart, have all your people start doing CAS glute bridges. Start calling it a CAS glute bridge, start putting it in your program because it's better for the short position. So if you're all gung-ho with the short position, I wanna see CAS glute bridge in the next Booty by Brett month. You know what I mean? So I found that irony to be like hard to ignore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the hip thrust is absolutely more lengthened. That's why you, when you go cast glute bridge to hip thrust, it's a mechanical yeah, drop set. Yeah. Um, but I do, uh, so I, I do try to think both sides when I, when I look at these things, I try not to be super, uh, focused just on, on what I believe to be right. Um, or to support my bias. But when you think about Brett and the way that he has made this entire identity on training the glutes, I, I know that girls come to him specifically for glute specialization work. They're willing to go super high volume and frequency on their glutes at the expense of other musculature. And so inherently we're limited by the amount of days in a week that we can hip hinge squat and lunge. You just can't do it that often. Like you can do it twice a week, maybe three times. If you like really program it well with like further proximities from failure, I don't know, twice is probably the most that I could do that. Um, so if you're going to train the glutes five times a week, then you have to fill that shit in with like banded hip distractions and short position glute bridges and kickbacks and like all that sort of stuff, because it's just, you can't train the glutes five times a week otherwise. So like, that's the one piece where I look at it and I'm like, yeah, like I, I see where these movements have a place in your programming for what you specifically do. Um, but I still think the whole thing was, was a dumpster fire, as you said, maybe it's in the third part, but he, he, he makes this argument of, Hey dude, when you're doing 36 sets of glutes per week, which is the number that they do per week, he's like, when you're doing 36 sets of glutes per week, you, you need exercises, one that challenges short position because they're less fatiguing. You also need band work, which is inherently short position biased, uh, like oh, short position resistance profile. And he's like, you need some of this stuff. And I just was laughing at the fact that like, that is because you are locked into this idea that you need to do 36 sets of glutes. And if you, yes, if I need to do 36 sets of glutes, we're doing fucking donkey kicks with a with a TheraBand because you, you if you do anything else, you won't recover. And so it is this like, cart before the horse chicken egg thing where it's like well you you if you if you have already pre-decided that you need to do 36 sets of glutes yes I, half of that he says he does 12 horizontal abduction uh, uh horizontal hip extension uh so like 12 sets of hinging um whatever 12 sets of like more squat patterns and then 12 sets of abduction work and probably half of that with like bands and probably half of that at short position. And so like, if you, if you, ha if you locked yourself into doing this, which is the problem you, you have locked yourself into doing this because it is become your identity to train the, train the glutes a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean with a lot of sets, the goal isn't to train with a lot of sets. The goal is to get the best stimulus to fatigue ratio probably. Um, and so I just was like, yeah, I totally agree with you. He goes into depth. And he's like, yeah, hey, Kaz, I don't think you understand. We train glutes 36 sets a week. And I'm like, yeah, why are you doing that? You know, why not? Why this? Just because you are doing that, you have to fill it with some of this bullshit. Um, but yeah, bullshit might be mean, but you have to fill it with less stimulative work. And so that part was interesting. I also, have you listened to some of the Kaz and Mike, Mike, not Kaz and Mike, but let's say Mike versus somebody else on the podcast, Isratel. Mm-hmm. Mike is always playing the Kaz role. Like somebody's always coming on the podcast to like come at Mike about something. And Mike's always very respectful, I think, in like asking questions that stimulate a response, but never like, never gets a chance to like get his own opportunity to go in. And I think that's what happened to Kaz this time because he's usually in the opposite role where like Kaz will come on to like debate Mike or something. And he, and Kaz does a lot more of the talking and a lot more of yeah. the expl explaining. And this time it was very flipped. And I just, there's a, there's a difficult, uh, this is a difficult dynamic there to be the, on the receiving end of this entire discussion instead of like, Kaz, it was an 80, 20 conversation. It wasn't like, mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I respect Kaz. I think he did that very respectfully. Um, and I, I respect Mike cause I think he does it magnificently well, but it does leave a bit to, to be, there were a lot of people that messaged Kaz and was like, Hey, I would really love to hear 
what the fuck you actually had to say because you didn't actually say that much. Um, and so I, that was that was a bit of a shame, but I think he handled it. I thought they handled it very respectfully. Yeah, I mean, every time he went to say anything, Brett was there to cut him off. Um, and then also, dude, 36 sets of glutes, that's ubiquitous. Like, what the fuck? What about N of one? What about some people need 20 sets and some people need 50 sets or something like that? Like 36 sets, everyone that walks into the lab, 36 sets. I can respect it if it's a group, Group, uh, you know, he does like a group yeah, program. I can understand yeah. that, that there's like some, some you're using a bell curve and trying to help the most people, but this didn't feel like that reasoning. It felt like, yeah. it felt like I'm the glute guy and I'm, we're going to do it five times a week. And if we're doing it five times a week, I wrote a program. The, it's so funny. I took on a client who's like a very advanced dude. Um, he wants, really wants to train six days a week. And as much, we've had an intellectual discussion about pros and cons. And as an experiment, I want to see how he does at six days a week. I don't think that that's probably the best, but given uh as an experiment i'm like are you going to survive this are you going to be able to recover are you going to be able to progress how long how many weeks of consecutive training can you do that and just out of sheer interest we're going to go for it and we see what happens but i was writing this six-day program i'm like once you start doing three leg days a week like it, it there was no room you can't do five super high stimulative exercises each day and so it's like the more that you're doing the lower the threshold for I would say quality, let's say, but like mm -hmm. the lower stimulus exercises have to make it in there or you just won't survive. It's like you have a day that's like squats with leg curls, a day that's like hinging with leg extensions, and then maybe like a day with a single leg squat or something like that. Yeah, but yeah, that's two exercises a day. And I think that that's a one nice amount of uh, leg stimulus, let's say. Yeah. But you're, you know, he's training 36 sets of glutes per week. I mean, we're going to need... Yeah. We're going to need a, a, a frog pump. We're going to need to invent shit up, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah. I find that to be like, you, you, you're working in the wrong direction there instead of like what's best. And then I'll do that. You're like, well, I'm going to do this. And if I'm going to do this by God, we're going to have to put some of this non-stimulative or less stimulative work in. Yep. Cool, yeah. man. Let's, uh, let's not, let's end it from there. And I appreciate your time man. super fun chat. As always drop a line where people can find you and I'll put everything in the description. Yep, yep. At Brian Borstein on Instagram, uh, Evolved Training Systems, Paragon Training Methods, and my podcast. We had Jordan on. If you missed that episode, make sure you check it out. It was, uh, what, maybe 10 or 12 episodes ago. But uh, Eat, Train, Prosper with my co-host, Aaron Straker. Nice, man. All right, man. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk soon. Appreciate it, brother. Yep, yep. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.